If you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 John chapter 4, where we're ready for today. Hey, I got like a special favor to ask today. I think it's super important. I want to make sure that we all have a Bible with you today. So we have some free Bibles that we want to give out today. So if you don't own a Bible or don't have a Bible with you today, some of you have it on your phone. That's great. Um, But Toby's going to give a Bible. He's going to bring a Bible around. You can borrow it if you need it for today, if you just forgot yours at home. And again, if you don't have a Bible, please take this, put your name in it. It's our gift to you. We want you to have it. Keep it. And and I want you to read it and to... um, follow along with me today. I have kind of a, a, a hard topic, kind of heavy on my heart this morning, but I, I can't skirt around the issue. I think we need to hit this one head on as a church family. And so really just want you guys to, to follow along with me in the scriptures as we go through. Anybody else need a Bible? Don't be embarrassed. We got you. Raise your hand. One more over here. Okay. Thank you. So we're in first John chapter four today. And we are going to, um, we're, we're going to really kind of hang out in the first six verses. I'd like to finish the chapter this morning. I want to kind of specifically hang out on this topic of deception. So if you're new to our series in 1 John, 1 John is, by this point, is Grandpa John. This is the same John who is um, self-described as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He had a special relationship and friendship with Jesus He was Jesus's bestie. He was Jesus's BFF as Jesus walked here on the earth. John was the one who laid in Jesus's bosom at the Last Supper, literally put his head and was closer to Jesus than the other 11 disciples. When when the disciples needed a favor of Jesus, because John was like closer to him and had it in, they would go to, to, to and say, have John ask him and then he'll say yes. And John lived his life three years. He walked with Jesus. Jesus redirected his life as we studied. And then, and then for 60 years, John went and he, and he did the work of the disciples of starting the early church and, and sharing the gospel and spreading it around the world. John was the failed attempt of an assassination by the Roman government. Uh, uh, and, and then he was exiled to an island called Patmos. The Holy Spirit and Jesus himself showed up on the island of Patmos and gave John the revelation of Jesus Christ. As John penned the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. And then John comes home from exile back to the city called Ephesus. And by this point in the first century, Ephesus was the largest epicenter of of the Christian church that had grown in that time. At one point, Paul was the pastor of Ephesus. Timothy was the pastor in Ephesus. Grandpa John, the pastor in Ephesus. So they had some good pastors in this church, in the early church. And and it's there where John writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, probably chronologically the last three books written in the New Testament. And in there, John has a very simple message. If anybody wanted to write deep theological things about Jesus and God, it would have been John who would have had the ability and the knowledge and the wisdom. But yet, Grandpa John doesn't do that. He just takes a message and he makes it very simple. Love one another. Love one another. And he just tells us the same thing. We know there's only 310 different vocabulary words that John uses in his three letters. Really simple, really redundant at at times, it feels. And we're going to read again in chapter 4 some more things that he's just going to repeat that he's already said in this epistle. And you're like, maybe Grandpa John had Alzheimer's when he came back because didn't he just say this like two lines ago? But he, he didn't. He just, it's so important. He just keeps saying it. There was a pastor and every Sunday he would tell his congregation, you must be born again. You must be born again. And he'd come back Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and he would stand in front of his church and emphatically would tell the church, church, you must be born again. Finally, somebody just got tired of it. And they said, pastor, every week you tell us you must be born again. Don't you think we've heard that already? Why do you keep repeating the same thing over and over again? Why do you keep telling us you must be born again? The pastor looked at him and thought wisely about his answer for a minute. And he said, well... That's because you must be born again. And, and that's Grandpa John. He just keeps telling us something that's so important that, that we can keep, keep doing it. D.L. Moody, who was a fiery preacher of the past, uh, one of the greats of the old, he, he, he preached a full sermon on love from this, this idea. And the next week he went back to the same church and he taught the same exact message in week two. 
Some guy came up after him and thought like he forgot that he preached that same sermon last week. And he said, hey, when are you going to preach a different sermon? And D.L. Moody said, when you, when you start living this one, then I'll start preaching another one. And the simple uh, message of love one another. So we, we get Grandpa John. And I told you guys one of the things that we were going to kind of focus on from Grandpa John each week. Something I wanted you to memorize. I wanted you to know. And that was the reason why John writes the epistles. So again, a little bit of redundancy taken right out of John's playbook. But these things we write to you, chapter 1, verse 4, that your joy may be, that your joy may be full. Chapter 2, verse 1, these things we write that you might not sin. Chapter 2, verse 26, these things we write that you be not, that you be not. Chapter 5, verse 13, these things we write that you know that you have eternal life. The third one is the one we're going to camp on today. In chapter 2, verse 26, it says that you be not Look at your neighbor and say, don't be deceived. Now look at your second choice and tell them don't be deceived. So let's look at chapter 4, verse 1. And it says, beloved, do not believe. Everybody say, do not believe. Now why is he telling us do not believe? You know, like we, we um, saw this theme, love, 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 love. In chapter 2, verse 15, John takes this um, U-turn and he starts in, in chapter 2 and verse 15 by saying, do not love. Do not love the things of the world. Love, love, love. And then he says, do not love the things of the world. Well, here we get another one. Chapter 4, verse 1. And he says, believe, believe, believe on the name, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he comes to him and he says, do not believe. He says, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. How many? Many false prophets. By this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses Jesus is Christ and has come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now already is in the world. You are you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And they that are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us, and he who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So I want to start, and we're going to flip around a little bit. I want you guys to follow with me. And he says first, do not be deceived, or sorry, do not believe every spirit. Let's turn to Matthew. Let's start in Matthew chapter um, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 7. And Jesus said something on this same topic. Beginning in verse 15, chapter 7, verse 15. Now, I want to tell you something about forming biblical doctrine. It's very important. We're going to get to this throughout the message. But but he says here to um, test the spirits and see whether they're true. Now, whenever you want to form a biblical doctrine, you, you have to have something that's introduced in the Old Testament. Jesus taught on it somewhere in the, in the Gospels, and then the epistles clarified it or mentioned it or solidified it in the letters in the rest of the New Testament. If you have all three present, Old Testament, Jesus, and the disciples, now we have something that's substantial that we can build a doctrine, that we can grow, that we can learn. We have to take into consideration the entire counsel of God's Word. Let me give you an example of some no-nos. If, if you study in context the book of Job, the book of Job is like 50 chapters. Well, in the first two chapters, you have this kind of interesting, amazing conversation between God and Satan. And Satan shows up as he's traveling to and fro. He shows up in the throne room of God. And God says to him, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And you're like, thanks, God. But... That's the way that it goes. And, and, and Satan says to, to, to God, no, he only, he only worships you. He's only perfect in, in his righteousness because you've blessed him so much. But take away his blessing and he'll curse you to your face. And God lays out some parameters and he says, okay, Satan, you can buffet him, but you can't take his life. And Satan throws the world at him, throws the book at him. His children die, their house collapsed, and all his children die in once. 
He, he loses everything, all of his livestock. Boils begin to break out on his skin and he's breaking pot, pottery shards and taking the pottery shards and scraping his skin from the boils in his house. He's putting ashes over himself. His life is completely turned upside down and in shambles. And, and at the end of the story of Job, God restores him and God raises him back up and gives him more in the end of his life than he had in the beginning. So the first two chapters describe the beginning part of Satan asking God if he can buffet Job. Then somewhere three, four, Job's three friends show up. And for like 35 chapters, Job's three friends have a conversation that God records, which is the book of Job, of them trying to understand and tell Job why he's going through what he's going through. And first one takes a crack at it and talks for a chapter and a half. And then the second one takes a crack at it and he talks for a while. And then the third friend and... And finally, uh, this goes on for like 30 chapters in, in Job with his three friends trying to tell him why he's experiencing what he's experiencing. And then finally, God shows up at the end of the book of Job and, and, and basically uh, paraphrase. He says, hey, you three knuckleheads, shut up. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you when I set the distance between the sun and the moon? Where were you when I breathed the stars into existence? Where were you when I set beetle geese and the universe into its orbit? Where were you when I laid a ruler on the oceans and told them how far they should come? And, and God says, shut up while I talk. And then God begins to tell them exactly the truth and what's going on. So what, if we read and understand the book of Job in context, the middle 35 chapters are not God telling us truth about life. They're these three guys that are, that are philosophizing and, and coming up with ideas from their own mind and what they think is happening. And God is just recording it. The Holy Spirit is recording the conversation that these four friends are having. And so many times you'll see some major church doctrine or belief about Christianity or about God somewhere like in Job 20. So the next time you see something and the quote on the verse or on the belief or on the thing it's trying to tell you is somewhere out of the middle of Job, let that be a red flag for you. That's not God's intent to make a doctrine out of something that, that God just recorded. Take the book of Ecclesiastes. It's the same thing. You can't take a doctrine from Ecclesiastes because Ecclesiastes is not... Um, glorifying. It's not allowing. It's not saying it's okay for Solomon to have a thousand wives. God just records the fact that he does. Now, men don't think it's all that glamorous. I don't think most of you guys can handle the one you got. I don't know what you're going to do with another hundred, 999. <laughs> and and uh, th that's not the end of it. But you have to understand in the story of Solomon's life, God took one individual in all of human history. And for your sake and for my sake, he let this dude climb the ladder all the way to the top of whatever it is and all like five different categories of life that we think will bring us pleasure. And, and Solomon got to the top so he could look over the edge and tell you and me that the meaning of life is not found there. There's no happiness there. The world doesn't satisfy. It doesn't fulfill. And so God allowed Solomon to have all the pleasure in the world. The dude had a thousand wives and who knows how many concubines. How many? A thousand altogether. 700 wives, 300 concubines. You realize if he went in one a day, that would take him like two and a half years just to get through them. And who could go every night without taking a night off? God bless you. And Solomon... He got to the, he, he, so that's it, right? Some of you guys think, wow, that would, and so God, God allows this one guy, Solomon. And when he got done with that part of his life and he realized that there was no, um, th there was no fulfillment in it, then he began to pursue wisdom and knowledge. And Solomon became the wisest man that ever lived. The queen of Sheba, countries away, came from Ethiopia to, to visit and to see the splendor of Solomon and his glory in the kingdoms that he had built and, and, and recorded for us in the Bible. When she got there, she said, man, the, I, it, the exaggeration that I heard doesn't even begin to describe it because it's so much better and so much grander. They, then then when, when Solomon couldn't get there with education and wisdom, he began to amass finances and money. Solomon had so much gold and silver in his kingdom, they stopped counting it. So he got to the top of the financial ladder and he looked over and he said, it's empty. It's vanity. It didn't fill that hole in my heart. It didn't fill it. So God allowed one guy in human history to reach pleasure, wisdom, 
He, he, he pursued partying and alcohol and drugs and mind-altering things in Solomon's life, and it wasn't there. And, and Solomon is recording things throughout the book of Ecclesiastes that, that are not doctrine. They're a guy who God is allowing to, 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 to really walk away from him and just recording what he says. So a long story to tell you, you can't go into Solomon's life necessarily and repeat what he says that it's valid for you today to walk that way because it's ta- you have to take it in context. So in, um, in 1 John... When he says, do not be deceived, when we take doctrine and things in the word, and I want to hammer this out today with you guys in love, we, we have the ability to deceive. What, what did Jesus say? Chapter 7, Matthew, verse 15. Beware of who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Would, would Jesus tell you to beware of false prophets if there were no false prophets? Would he be wasting his breath or his time? So the fact that Jesus hits on it, means that it's an issue. The Bible doesn't tell us 365 times, do not be afraid, because none of us are ever afraid. Guess what's a tendency for you and me? To be afraid. And, and so God tells us. He doesn't tell us things just because. If he says it, there's a reason for it. And he said, and then John tells us how, how, how many false prophets, how many dece- deceptions. He says many, many false prophets, many deceptions. And Jesus said, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And that's where we get that phrase that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount is where we to this day have the saying, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Satan doesn't come to you red and red, his red Satan suit with his horns and his pitchfork and his pointy tail and his breath that smells like sulfur in the sewer and say, come and follow me to hell. Like how many of you guys are going to follow that Satan to hell if he says come and burn with me in eternity and it's hot and nobody follows right no no one's going to follow that deception satan doesn't come that way that's what jesus said but yet jesus also said broad is the road that leads to destruction and narrow is the way of salvation and few will enter thereby so so satan doesn't have to um get the, the the meter very far off in deception because broad is the way that leads to destruction and narrow is the way that leads to salvation and Satan doesn't come with, with a pitchfork. He comes with a small deception. He comes in a suit. He comes in, in, in a somebody that looks like you and looks like me and sounds like you and sounds like me. Somebody who, when they smile, their teeth goes ting. They're white pearlies. And, you know, somebody who's attractive and somebody who has something that's, that's drawn to them. And they don't have to be a false prophet and a deceiver that Jesus talks about and John talks about. Most of the time, it's 90% truth, 95% truth, and just a little bit off. And and, and you don't have to be 100% off. Satan doesn't have to be. He just has to be a little bit off enough. And John's going to tell us, I'm going to jump ahead in the sermon. John's going to tell us that that little bit that's off, that's so key is Jesus. And Jesus is the the litmus test. And you've got to have the right Jesus. You've got to have the right theology and doctrine and and believe about Jesus. And that's what John's going to tell us is going to separate us. You know, you say one degrees. Well, that's not that big of a deal, right? Well, what if we all got in a in a plane this afternoon and we were heading to Hawaii? How many have been to Hawaii before? One person. The rest of us need to get out a little more. A couple of us now. My wife wants me to take her to Hawaii for our 20th wedding anniversary. She's been putting pressure on me for a while now, you know, like... Little pictures of Hawaii and the boys buy hats and they got Hawaiian things on them. And so I'm going to need to borrow some money here pretty soon. My 20th anniversary is coming up. Just kidding. That's a sign of a false prophet. I asking you for money to go so he could go to Hawaii. Um, so if we were going to Hawaii and, and we, what if we had our dial? What if in the plane that the dial was set just one degree off? By the time we got to Hawaii, we'd miss the island by 400 miles and we'd all die in the middle of the Pacific Ocean somewhere. When, when you, you know, one degree as you go on is a big deal. And Satan's deception doesn't need to be huge. It just needs to get us off. And it's something that we have to be on our guard for. I want to illustrate this, this with a story. And I don't know if you guys know this is there. I saw this. Let's turn with me to Numbers 13. Now, I, I saw this, this verse, Numbers 13. I'm sorry, Numbers 12, 
verse number six, numbers 12, verse number six. I saw this used to um, recently to tell us that there are modern day prophets that are alive today that are going to be showing up, that are going to give us revelation. And, and this was the proof text to say that, that we have this function of prophets that are alive and well today. And it was this quote that was used. And so it says, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly and do not and not in dark. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So I saw this used again to say that we have prophets among us and the Lord speaks to him through vision and you should come and listen to our prophet. Now, now I'll give you the first of all, if you take this in context. The Lord is really what he's saying in these three verses is that that Moses is not like the rest of the prophets. Like this guy stands alone. I, I speak I might speak in vision and and abstract ways to the prophets. But with Moses, man, I speak to this dude face to face like he's my guy. And, and, and why are you not afraid then to to talk bad about Moses? And, and so you take it in context. It's not even really what it's saying. But I'll, I'll concede the idea that, that in this, God says he speaks to prophets. Okay? But again, if we're going to take a verse out of numbers and form a doctrine out of it, don't you think we should keep it in context? Don't you think there's some other biblical rules that apply? You know what else it says in numbers? It says that teenage children, if they're rebellious towards their parents, should be stoned to death. You guys are like, yeah, that's a good rule. It's a good idea. It says in Numbers that for seven days out of the week during a certain period of time that you should put your wife outside the house where she shall live for seven days. Now, you men think that's great. And I used to tease my wife with that and say, well, you know, God thought in the Old Testament that you should really live outside for these seven days. And she said, I'm all for it. I want some chocolate and some wine and a little hunt and some, you know, I'll stay out there for seven days. And so... um, so again, in understanding those things, we can't just take a verse in numbers that says we should stone our children if they're rebellious and not take into consideration the entire counsel of God's word. Because Jesus tells us in the New Testament that the law of Moses has been fulfilled. It wasn't bad, but that he fulfilled it. And the law is now love. And they, as an example, they brought a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. And in Numbers, it says that we should stone her to death for her adulterous act. And all the Pharisees were there at their rocks. And they said, okay, Jesus, in Numbers, it says we should kill her. What do we do? And so now that I'm taking in consideration the entire counsel of God's word, Jesus said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, they dropped their stones and they left. And Jesus said to the woman, where are your accusers? And she said, I have none. And he said, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. So, so we get this perspective that's taken not by taking something out of numbers, out of context, but by taking into consideration the entire counsel of God's word. Now, in the area of prophets, there, there's this funny story in Kings. I want you guys to check this out because you may know it's there. You may not. There's a story in, in Kings. I'm not going to get. I want you guys to go with me to chapter 13 of Kings. We're going to be in verse 11. First Kings, find it. First Kings 13, 11. So there's a story in Kings. I don't know if you guys know this one, but Elijah is there and these teenagers are giving him a hard time. They're like throwing rocks at him and they're saying, hey, you bald head, hey, baldy. And they're making, they're like making fun of his bald head. And I know what kind of jokes they were making. I don't got any good ones about bald heads, but they were just saying baldy. Like we had this guy, my brother's friend when I was a kid and he was, his name was Ray and he had red hair. And we used to say, Ray, the redheaded blob, Ray, the redheaded blob. And we'd chase him around and, um, so they're, they're, they're teasing Elijah and they're telling him, hey, baldy, old bald man. So there's a story in Kings and it says that, that, that Elijah like prays and it says that a bear comes out of the woods and mauls these teenagers. That's in First Kings or it's in Kings. You should find it. I'm not making this up. Well, I got another story that you may have not known was there and it's not quite as crazy, but it's, it's along the same lines. But I want you to see something super important in this story, okay? About the idea of false prophets, about the idea of deception. And just just again, so that I don't get too far rabbit trailed. One of the four reasons that John writes is so that you be not what? 
deceived. Jesus said, beware of false prophets. We live in a day where there's many false prophets and many deceptions is what John says says to us. And so that's what I'm addressing. And so um, in chapter 13, verse 11, it says, Now an old prophet dwelt in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the works that a man of God had done that day in Bethel. And they also told their father the words which he had spoken to the king. And their father said to, which way did he go? For his son had seen which way the man of God went who came from Judah. All right, let me stop there so that we can, we can keep the story. I'm going to move a little quicker. It says, so they're, they're in Bethel. Now, a guy from Judah, which Judah is um, in the south, he goes to Bethel, and, and there the prophet from Judah goes to Bethel, and he gives the king a prophecy. Now, there was a prophet who was in Bethel already, and he heard that this young prophet was in town, and he sent his sons to go find the young prophet. And in verse 13, it says, Then he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he rode on it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. An oak. Then, <coughs> then they said to them, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. And he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I cannot. So the, guy, the young prophet said, I cannot return with you, nor go in with you. Neither can I eat bread, nor drink water with you in this place. For I have been told by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread, nor drink water there, nor return by the going the way you came home. So the old prophet tells the young prophet to, to come to his house and eat bread. And the young prophet says, I I can't go to your house and eat bread because God gave me a specific word that I was to go to Bethel. I was to give this prophecy to the king and I was to come home. And God said specifically, do not enter anyone's house, nor eat bread, nor dine with anybody, nor stay with anybody. The word of the Lord came to me clearly. I've delivered the word from the king and now I have to go home. So I can't go to your house and eat bread because God told me not to. And listen what the old prophet from Bethel says to the young prophet from Judah. He said to him, verse 18, I want you guys to read because I'm going to ask you to read out loud in a minute. I too am a prophet as you are. This is a true statement, by the way. The old prophet was a prophet of God. God had used him and spoke through him prophecy. And he was known as a prophet who brings prophecy. Not that part is true. And an angel spoke to me by word of the Lord saying, bring him back with you to your house that we may be eat bread and drink water. Verse 18, the last five words say, well, you guys didn't read that right. Look at it again. He, he's a prophet, remember? He can't, right? What does it say, the last five words? He was lying to him. We have a prophet. And he's like, yeah, liar. Don't play the clip. We had it enough. Liar. So he, he's lying. He tells the young prophet, well, how does he cover his lie? What does he say? What did he say came to him? Sound familiar to anybody? An angel came to me. You know, Apostle Paul deals with this in the New Testament. And he says, even if an angel of the Lord comes and preaches any other gospel, let him be an anthema. Cursed, cut off from, from eternity and from God. Damned eternally is what that word means. Let him be an anathema. Let him be accursed. The prophet Muhammad claims that he was alone in a cave and an angel appeared to him and gave him a revelation to write a holy book. It's called the Quran. He wrote a holy book. And to this day, hundreds of millions of people follow this man's prophecy and revelation that he received from an angel and, and, and believe him as the, the true prophet of God. Okay? But the... The Apostle Paul tells us, and here it says that we have the ability to be deceived, even if by someone who's a prophet or so-called prophet. And here we have a biblical case of a prophet who lies. In verse 19, it says, So he went back with him, and he ate bread in his house, and he drank water. Now, as it happened, as they sat at the table, that the word of the Lord came to him, to the prophet who had brought him back. And he carried out the man of God who came from Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandments which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back, ate bread and drank water in the place which the Lord said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. 
So, so now the old prophet has to deliver the real word of the Lord. He says, look, man, you were disobedient. And, and, and you got deceived. You got deceived because I told you that an angel of the Lord said to tell you and you bought it. And, and, and you don't get a pass. And, and, and go on. We'll go back to First John. But what's going to happen is that he's going to leave. And he's going to saddle his donkey. A lion's going to come out of the wilderness in the next five verses. going to eat this dude. Kill him. Doesn't eat him. Just kills him. Lion sits over the top of the body. Donkey next to the lion. The lion doesn't eat the donkey. And, and, and word comes back to the old prophet that the young prophet is dead on the street. And a lion is guarding his body. And a crazy story, right? And, and, and the old prophet goes... And he retrieves the body and he buries the body and gives instructions to bury the body in Judah, in his tomb. And then when he dies, his bones should be buried next to this kid. And not back in his hometown, not back in Bethel where the Lord said. So let's go back to 1 John. So we have this, this idea that, that, that the prophet lies. And John tells us again, Verse chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. I love this because John now is going to give us the litmus test for deception. Don't be deceived. And how and where do we go? He doesn't just tell us not to be deceived. He gives us the litmus test. And the litmus test, people, I want to tell you, is Jesus. And in every ism, schism, in every cult, in every false religion, with every false prophet, the, 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 the diminishing of the person of Jesus Christ is consistent all the way through. And he says, those that confess Jesus, Yeshua, the word Jesus means God is salvation. And the fact that Jesus was God, the Holy Trinity, salvation through faith in Jesus alone, not by works, lest any man boast, saved by grace. All of these things that the, that, the, that the church has believed for 2,000 years of Jesus Christ, John tells us is the litmus test. And, and I don't care if it's the JWs, if it's LDS, if it's Islam, if it's, you know, they all have a little bit different Jesus. And, and who Jesus is is important. You know, and one of the things you struggle with and you watch people outside of our faith who, who lead good lives and moral lives and, and, and they confess Jesus and, and just confess Him just a little bit different than, than what's true. And you think, can it be so bad? Is it so terrible? But John here says that we, in this area, you have to get it right. Do you, do you know in the Quran that Jesus is taught and mentioned in the Quran multiple times? He's called Isis. It's the Greek pronunciation of, of the word Jesus or Arabic. And, and in the Quran, Jesus is taught more than Muhammad himself, the prophet. And yet it's, it's, it's a different Jesus. He, he's not the same Jesus that we understand and we believe. If you, get, if you have the Jehovah Witnesses that come to your house, they come to your door, they have a Bible that they carry. And if you open their Bible to John chapter 1, verse 1, and it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In their Bible, they're going to add one little letter that's just going to change everything because they, they, they need it to change. They just need to turn Jesus just a little bit. And they add a letter A, and it reads in the, in the Jehovah Witness Bible, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And that changes everything. That He wasn't God, He was a God. You, you know, God. Uh, Paul tells Timothy, Great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifest in the flesh. In Isaiah chapter 9, you can turn there with me if you'd like. In Isaiah chapter 9, speaking of Jesus, and we'll get that, we'll give you guys a second to turn there. Last week I used the example. I said, and maybe you weren't here, so I'll repeat it, because it's important for us just to understand this concept, that, that is it important if our Jesus is just a little bit off? If I had you guys all at my house for dinner tonight, and we're sitting around the dinner table, and somebody kicks in the back door, and they come in and they, they pull the, the pin with their mouth of a grenade and they roll it down to the dinner table. And all you guys just freeze like fear grips your bodies, but not me. I jump to action. 
And I run over and I find Nathan, my son, and I grab him and I run over and I throw him on top of the grenade and boom, he takes one for the team. Now you guys might think, well, that, that was, you saved my life. But you, you murdered your son. You used your son to save my life. Now, am, am I a good father if I take my son and I throw him on top of that grenade? This, this, this analogy always gets real confusing because you guys aren't sure what to say right here. The answer is no, I'm not a good father. What does a good father do? What would, what would, what would a noble, uh, uh, an integral, a right thing to do for a father to do? Would it be to go grab my son and throw him on the grenade? What does a father do? What does a good father do? He jumps on it himself, right? That makes sense. And when we take... God to be removed from Jesus and, and we take God that to, to send his son, his created son and, and threw him on top of the cross to die for your sins and my sins. But Jesus is a little less than he's not God. He's God's son that's removed. We make God to be cruel. It changes everything because great is the mystery that God became was manifest in the flesh. That Jesus is God is so important because it means that God himself came out of heaven to die on a cross for your sins and my sins. And who Jesus is, is crucial, is, is important, is everything to getting right to our faith. And it matters. And, and look at what Isaiah says. Isaiah says, For unto us, in chapter 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. Now we're going to slow down. I'm going to help you guys out right here. So, raise your hand. And for those of you that have a little confusion now, who it's talking about. A child is born, a son is given. Who are we talking about? Anybody not sure? Anybody want to argue with this fact? We can, we'll hash it out right now. Anybody? Pretty clear, right? That for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That's talking about Jesus. And then listen to the description that God gives us through Isaiah, and the, the true prophet, about Jesus. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, comma, Counselor, comma, Mighty God, comma. Jesus is described as Mighty God, not less than, not diminished, not inferior to. Everlasting Father. Jesus is described as the Everlasting Father. Jesus told his, his disciples, he said, Before Abraham was, I am. Making himself one with the Father. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then, and then he says, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase, His government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over His kingdom to order it and establish it with justice forever from this time forward, even forever. And I love this because it says, then it says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. God's going to perform this. He's going to make this happen by his zeal. Like God's fired up by this one. And the zeal of the Lord will perform this. And that, that who Jesus is, is the litmus test that he gives us. And, and we can't be deceived in that. Now, here's just the truth. I'm going to sit down for this one. Um, we, have, we have lots of schools of thought, including Christianity. And we'll, we'll fit Christianity into there. Because Christianity... We have what's going on in the church now um, is the, the faith, uh, happy, healthy, wealthy doctrine. And happy, healthy, wealthy doctrine is steeped in that God wants us all to be happy, healthy, wealthy. Well, he couldn't figure that out for himself or any of his disciples or one person in the Bible. But somehow today there's a doctrine that says that God wants you and I to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. And it's a false teaching and a false doctrine within the Christian church that is purveying the Christian church that is, that is just not true. But, but in, in, in four major religions of the world, and let's say Christianity, in LDS religion, in um, Catholicism, and in Islam, probably within those four, four religions, majority of the, of the world fits somewhere in there. In, in Islam, they have a prophet who uh, received a revelation by an angel. He wrote a book called the Quran that, that we're to follow and believe in him as the true prophet. LDS have the same teaching, the same belief. Joseph Smith received a vision um, from an angel. He wrote a book, the Book of Mormon and the other writings. And his revelation is bond and is the one we're supposed to follow. In, in the Catholic religion, they have, um, you can go online, you can look it up. In St. Petersburg, 
in the Vatican, there's a seat and it's God awful like throne. And, and the Pope will sit in this seat when God brings and gives him special revelation. It's called when the Pope speaks, it's called ex cathedra or the vo- voice of God. So we have in, in, in Rome, in the, um, in the, in the Vatican, we have the, the, the Pope who's speaking ex cathedra as if the voice of God. We have the current um, leaders of different religions who claim the same thing, and they're speaking as if the voice of God. And so we have all of these prophets. And then again, myself and anybody, you can lump us all in the same, same thing. I'm not excluding us or, or false Christian religions from any of that. But the reality is, what, what happens when the, the revelation of Islam or the revelation of the Catholic Church or the revelation of the LDS Church or our church, when they contradict? Are they all right? The car is just, it's not a gray car. I think it's blue. You think it's gray. She thinks it's white. It's just whatever you want it to be. Truth is relevant. It's relevant to you. It's relevant to me. No, dummy, that's a gray car. Carrie, what do you think? It's a gray car. So th- there's no just, re- you know, that, that just this, this truth that's true for you, truth for me. There's got to be one truth. And there's got to be a way to test the spirits. There's got to be a way to find out which one of these revelations is from God. And yet they all contradict. And John tells us here, be not deceived. And that the litmus test is Jesus. And it's the word of God. And, and, and getting the right Jesus. You know what? Something we unpacked last week, and I told you guys last week that, you know, the Apostle Paul... And the people that followed his teachings and his, and his writings. There was two groups of people. There was the Bereans and the Thessalonians. And he said those in Thessalonica or those in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Because the Bereans, they received the word daily and they went back to see if these things were true. And, and, and those in Thessalonica, they just received the word hook, line, and sinker because it was from the Apostle Paul and, and, and they just believed it. Now, if it's from the Apostle Paul, you're probably okay. But if it's from me, you might want to go and be a, be a Berean and check it out and see if it's true. Because just, again, the point being that, that you're responsible, I'm responsible for truth. And we studied last week, the Bible says you need that no one um, teach you. What does that mean? That means if somebody comes, it doesn't mean that we don't have the function of teaching. It's a, it's a function of the Holy Spirit that's valid for the church and the gifts of the Spirit. It's the way that God wants us to function and meet. But when, when somebody comes, if I ever come to you and I say, hey, listen, I have a revelation from God that you need to get from me. You're not going to get this anywhere else. It's on sale today. <laughs> Half off. Get out your wallets. Please go find a different church. If you ever feel like you have to have this person's revelation of truth, it's deception. It's drawing disciples to oneself. And it's, it's, it's discouraged in the word of God. It's called out in the word of God. Amen? You guys got the idea of deception? I think we hammered it, right? Let's talk about love now. You guys love each other? Um, let's go to verse 7. It says, because, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And in this, the love of God was manifest towards us that he sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The very essence of love is giving. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So it's, it's a matter of giving. And that we're supposed to love. So, so John says, be not deceived. And the, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Is love. Now it's manifest in joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, kindness, gentleness. All of those things are the, the attributes, but it's love is the fruit of the Spirit. So you say, well, I know I have the Spirit because I speak in tongues. Well, the Apostle Paul says, if you speak with tongues of men and angels and you have not love, you're a clanging cymbal or sounding brass. So that, that's not a sign or that's not the, the guarantee that you have the Spirit. If the guarantee in your life, in my life, that we have the Spirit is love. 
It's, it's do we naturally, and not that we always love, not that we never get angry and, you know, driving in the car someday, just say some wrong things to people that don't drive as well as we do and, you know, tell them they're number one or whatever you guys do out there. And um, that, that's not saying that. But the overwhelming idea is that as, as Christ followers, the, the number one sign that we're getting it and that God's spirit is moving in our heart should be love. We should have a genuine kind love kindness desire to love people you know and that's not true of all religions that's not true of all false religions and followers of you know those that want to say oh well it's all roads lead to god and we're all the same no we're not that's 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 unique of christianity And, and that is the thing that god wants us to jump on with two feet it's your love one for another by this they'll know you're my disciples jesus said we had a a guy how many guys you guys in here in church on wednesday night if you weren't here in church on wednesday night shame on you not sure if you're going to make it to heaven or not. Just kidding. Um, we, we had a friend of mine who's a pastor now at um, in Gooding Calvary Chapel who was a former Marine that Lydia and I got to know really closely. His name is Richard Wagemaker. He's been here before. We showed a video, I think, on a Sunday morning of he was in a firefight in Afghanistan, and he was leading Marines, and there was, it was one of the, the, the um, thickest months, uh, month, of fighting in the entire war. And it just so happened, um, for which, which news channel was it? Somebody remember? ABC, CNN? It wasn't CNN. It was, it was ABC, NBC, was one, MSNBC something. It was one of the, I got the video clip if you want to see it. It was one of the major networks. They just happened to be there. And there was a reporter with, embedded in his unit. And it made primetime news. And they videotaped this firefight with Taliban and U.S. forces going back and forth. And there's like a four-second spot of Marine talking and giving directions, and that's Richard Wagemaker, who happened just to get caught in that video. And he spent three tours of duty in Iraq, in Iraq and Afghanistan. He, um, him and his wife, the reason why we knew him, we met him in a couple's Bible study that we invited him to in our house. And when I first met uh, Wage, he was, he was super rough. He, uh, I don't know if he was a Christian or not, you know, his wife was. And you know, we, we spent a lot of time with them. And, and, we, and over the years, we, we just loved on them. And we just loved them and loved them and loved them. And he got up here on stage on Tuesday, on Wednesday night. And he shared a testimony, some of it that I've heard. And I'm in the back and I'm kind of crying because it's just, it's powerful and it's meaningful to me. And he tells a true story when the first men's retreats that I, I invited him, I got him to go to me with. And there was another one of our buddies that was kind of similar situation that Gary was, or that he was in named Gary Benton. The two of these guys go and they, they sneak off during the retreat and we're in Big Bear, California and they go to the bowling alley and start drinking beers. And, and so I, 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 I went with them and they I didn't drink beer. I bowled. I killed it that day. I think I bowled like 120. And so I bowled while they drank beers and we just, we just hung out and just loved on them and, you know, and, and, and through, through a process of times and. Richard was dealing with a lot of, a lot of stuff, PTSD and the, the middle transition, which I don't have time to get into today of, of going to combat and becoming that person and coming home and transitioning back to home life. And um, so what he shared on Wednesday night was that, you know, it was, it was, it was Chris just loving on me. Not, not just that I had anything at all to do with it, but I had a part of it. God did give me a part of it. And he said it was just his love. And when I expected maybe Christian people and church people and pastors like Chris should have judged me or wrote me off because of the kind of person that I was, that, you know, he, he just kept loving me. And he just had grace. And when I just would purposely, you know, blow smoke in his face, literally, you know, he, he just kept loving on me. And it was that patience and it was that love that eventually led me to Jesus and led me to make a decision that I wanted to follow Jesus. And now he's pastor and God's working in his life. And, and it was the love of Jesus that made a difference in his life. And it wasn't legalism and it wasn't self-righteousness. And, you know, he, he, he told the story on Wednesday night. And he said, you know, that I had called him, which is true. Um, and, and I was short a camp counselor for, for kids camp. And so I said, hey, Wage, I need some help. Will you go to kids camp with me? And he's like, yeah, I was a drunk Marine. I got a phone call from a pastor asking me to go to kids camp. And I said, well, in my defense, I didn't always take drunk Marines to kids camp. But um, he, he wasn't drunk that weekend. 
And actually, he didn't give himself enough credit. He had tons of gifts and skills and talents, and he was amazing, and the kids loved him, and he did a great job, and God was, was calling him and working in his life. But, you know, the message and the, the heart was just in this, that it's the love of Christ that changes our lives. Amen? So let's go find someone to love on this week. Let's stand. Is worship team going to come up and close us in a song? Hey, I got a couple verses left in... Um, in First John, that I didn't, I didn't read. Will you guys read those when you get home today? It's twelve through seven or through nineteen. I'm going to read the last one, the last three. It says in verse seventeen, "Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because He is. So we are, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect fear casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment." But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We must love him because he first loved us. And so as we, uh, go ahead, Mike, as we, we boast in our love, you know, we, we love God because he first loved us. And we talked about adoption last week, that God chose you in your sins. And it says, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. And that he, he first loved us. He called you. He loves you. He desires relationship with you. So it's our, it's our hearts this morning and um, that each one of you have an opportunity to get your heart and life right with Jesus. So I'm going to pray. I'm just going to pray for each one of you. And, and I just encourage you guys to seek Jesus. There's no magic in any words or prayer. It's a condition of your heart that God knows and God sees. If God spoke to you this morning or you're in a place where you just need to get your life right with God, you need to come back to God. You've been feeling far from God, and this morning you want to draw near to Him. I want to give you that opportunity. I'm going to pray for you. And just in your heart, agree with me and, and speak to God in your heart, and He'll hear you, and He'll honor your request this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for each one that's come. Lord, the message today from 1 John was that we should be not deceived and that we have a responsibility, Lord, to, to know your word, and not allow the, the things of the enemy to deceive us. And Lord, the, the message was to love one another. And that the real sign that we're Christian is, is not gifts of the Spirit in, other than the gift of love. And Lord, help us to, to have love and know love. And Lord, now I pray for, for everybody in here this morning. And Lord, if there's anyone in here this morning that, that is just crying out to you, who, who feels afar off from you and wants to draw near to you this morning. Lord, I pray for that one. And they know who they are in here. And Lord, they're just saying yes in their heart right now. They're agreeing, Lord, and they're asking you to come into their life. Dear Jesus, I pray that you would come into their life. You would be their Lord and Savior, that you would forgive us of our sins, that you would wash us clean, fill us with your Holy Spirit. And Lord, that you would make us more like Jesus every day. Lord, help us to love, to love other people as you love us. God, forgive us of our shortcomings and trespasses. Lord, we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen.